Well, take your Bibles out and open them to Exodus chapter 12. In our bulletin, this uh, sermon is Exodus 12, part 2, and as I was conversing with the brother this morning, I'm realizing it's probably better to say Exodus 12 and 13, part 2, as we continue to kind of go between uh, the two chapters to help us understand what the Lord has instituted this in this time in the Passover as well as in these other festivals of unleavened bread and the uh, offering of the firstborn or the redeeming of the firstborn. But what we've been doing as we've been coming to Exodus is we've been desiring to see the Lord's display of his sovereign rule over all his creation as well as his preservation and care over his people through wonders of mercy to those who take refuge in Christ. And so as we look at Exodus 12 this morning, uh, we're going to be reading a selection of verses here and in verse in chapter 13. Exodus 12, I'll be reading Exodus 12, 14 through 20, and Exodus 13, 3 through 10. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall have a holy assembly and another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them, except that what must be eaten by every person, that alone may be prepared by you. You shall also observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses. For whoever eats what is leaven, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is an alien or a native of the land. You shall not eat anything leavened in your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened bread. And then in Exodus 13, beginning in verse 3, Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery, for by a powerful hand the Lord brought you out from this place, and nothing leavened shall be eaten. On this day in the month of Abib, you are about to go forth. It shall be when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall observe this rite in this month. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days, and nothing leavened shall be seen among you, nor shall any leaven be seen among you in all your borders. You shall tell your son on that day, saying, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. 
and it shall serve as a sign to you on your hand, as a reminder on your forehead, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with the powerful hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Therefore you shall keep this ordinance in its appointed time from year to year. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him for help again in prayer. O Lord, we ask that you would be with us this morning as your word goes forth. Be first with me, your servant. We ask, Lord, that my words would be true to your words so that they may be an encouragement, that they may be a means of grace to your people, that they, taking hold of them by faith, may further understand the redemption of Christ their Lord. We, Lord, your people, ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we have been looking at these plagues, and we've been week by week reminded of these things, that this tenth plague is the culmination of Pharaoh's question in chapter 5, where he asked, Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? This tenth plague is, is the crowning plague. It's the plague of all plagues. None, none of the nine previous plagues were sufficient to uh, accumulate or to account for this tenth plague. Neither were they a nine blows in, in destroying the Egyptians, for the Lord needed none of the plagues to do so. But they were a demonstration of his sovereign rule. And so in this 10th plague, we see a demonstration not only of his sovereign rule, but of his sovereign grace. And so as we saw from uh, last week, we recognized that uh, uh, from A.W. Pink that there are many typical pictures of the sacrificial work of Christ scattered throughout the Old Testament. Yet it is to be doubted if any single one of them supplies so complete so many cited a portrayal of the person and work of the Savior as does the one before, before us. And as the other theologian said, he likened the Old Testament to a picture book of God's redemption in Christ. And so my intention this morning as we look specifically at this Feast of Unleavened Bread is that the Feast of Unleavened Bread is for us in Christ to teach that the church collectively and the believer individually are called to walk in practical holiness. That as the direct result of being washed in the blood and having communion with the sufferings of Christ. So this is to teach us in Christ that the church collectively and the believer individually are called to walk in practical holiness as the direct result of being washed in the blood and having communion with the sufferings of Christ. So we'll look at this feast for the Israelites in Christ and for us. And it, as it happens, that this festival is one that hits rather close to home, not because we practice the festival of unleavened bread in its uh, literalistic sense, but because a couple years ago, someone suggested that we should start growing bacteria on our countertops. 
And so we were given a sourdough starter, as it's called. It had an age. It was given a name. And eventually we shared our bacteria factory with some of you. And I learned that one does not just make sourdough bread, but it requires a bit of attention. There's really a night before prep that happens. The loaf has to be let alone and then manipulated and then let alone again. That then it's baked for an hour, and in my house it's eaten in 15 minutes. It's the culmination of almost 24 hours of work. And, and weeks and months and maybe years if, if it's been that long, if we'd never had to replace it. But we fed this starter, kept it alive so that we could make more loaves and make more loaves. And what I've come to understand about this starter is that it thrives in a, in, in a little bit of darkness. Uh, you cover it you keep it, you keep it moist, you set it not quite in the sun, but it thrives in darkness. It requires feeding, daily feeding. Did you feed the starter today? There's a common question in the Perkins home. And the longer it cures, the more sour it gets. It, it, it permeates the loaf. It happens that this starter is much connected to our passage because the Israelites were instructed to move, remove all leaven or yeast from their homes. They didn't go down and buy the yeast packages at the local market in Goshen. They had to keep and maintain a starter, a sourdough, starter in their homes so that they could bake bread daily, so that they could be fed daily with the sustenance provided from it. And so it is in this peculiar festival that the Lord tells them to remove that vital for them, that vital element of their life, or at least the perception of its vitalness to their life. And he tells them to remove it from their homes, to remove it essentially from the land. And so we look at this festival first for the Israelites, and we read uh, some of its uh, entailing of it in Exodus 12 and 13. Turn with me to Leviticus 23, where we have a greater explanation of it or a further explanation of it. Lord, giving them the Levitical law here as he is uh, making them into a nation to take possession of the land. And so he gives them the law, or he re-gives them the law in their anticipation of it in Deuteronomy. And then here he gives instruction to the priests in Leviticus and through the priest, there's instruction to the people. And so Leviticus 23 and verse 4, we read, These are the appointed times of the Lord, holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. 
in the first month on the 14th day of the month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. Then on the 15th day of the same month, there is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. And on the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. So we see here the instructions given and in reflection and likeness to the Exodus instructions that they were to have holy convocations. They were to assemble the people and worship, <coughs> excuse me, the Lord on the 15th day, or as we know, the eighth day, or as we also know, the first day and the seventh day or the 21st day. The first day was a holy convocation, and adjoined to this special Sabbath rest was, or to this special Sabbath was a rest. This holy convocation was given the status of Sabbath by saying no laborious work was to be done on the first day. And then, in light of that, they were also to offer daily offerings culminating in the seventh day or the 21st day where they would have another holy convocation with Sabbath rest. And so we see in this instruction for the Israelites that there is uh, a, an easy representation there of the church whereby we celebrate in holy convocations on the first day, the day when our Passover lamb was risen from the day, the day when the grave was muted, the day we celebrate, as we will see, the day of the unleavened bread showing forth its purity. But we continue with the Israelites. The reason for this festival, if we go back to Exodus 13, we see that there we find that there are reasons for this festival given. First, in verse 5 of Exodus 13, the Israelite, uh, in verse 5 it says, You shall be, it shall be when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. He says, In this land you will observe this right. And so we understand that the Israelites were not merely leaving Egypt. The Lord was not just redeeming them out of Egypt. Oh, he was bringing them out of Egypt, and he makes ample reference to that. But they were not merely leaving a place. They were also going to a place. The Israelites had an end in their journey, in their physical journeys. Their end was the land of Canaan. Their end was this land of blessing, of described flowing with milk and honey. The extent of the festival would result in no leaven in all the land. So one of the reasons for the festival was that they would also understand that they came out of Egypt to come in to Canaan, as well as that there would be no leaven in all the land. He says, in all your borders... Nor shall any, in verse 7, nor shall any leaven be seen among you in all your borders. 
And then finally, we see that they were to celebrate this festival as an instruction to the coming generation. In verse 8, that says, You shall tell your son on that day, saying, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Tell your sons, it was for what the Lord had done. The festival was for them to remember what the Lord had done and to tell the coming generations what the Lord had done. For the believing Israelite, it was also a reminder of what the Lord will do. For we have such uh, deposit in scripture indications that these festivals would have worked this way for those who were given eyes of faith. Psalm 95. Turn with me to Psalm 95. Psalm 95 in verse 8 reads, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had, had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they were a people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter my rest." Here, the psalmist is bringing to mind a warning to those who would not heed the word of God. And his warning is that, therefore, I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter my rest. Turn with me now to Hebrews 4 for the Spirit's interpretation of Psalm 95. author of Hebrews uses Psalm 95 as a somewhat of a sermon text, but as he exposits this sermon, it's not only the human author that does so, but the, it's the divine author that does so preeminently in interpreting the Spirit's words in Psalm 95. And he it reveals that within those words, he was revealing that there was a future rest to be had. In verse 8 of Hebrews 4, For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. The he there is the psalmist of Psalm 95 from verse 7. Not, not Joshua, but he, the psalmist, would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Do you see the connection there that the Spirit is making in Psalm 95, that the warning utilized in Psalm 95 of a previous act of God was so that they would know that the land was not their ultimate future hope, but that there was a greater land to come. The instruction of unleavened bread was working in that way. 
was that this land would be purged of leaven, that there is a land to be desired that, that no leaven exists in. And we know leaven represents corruption. Re- represents uh, uh, unrighteousness. And so it was to create in them a longing for a day when they would no longer celebrate the feast of unleavened bread, but exist in the land of unleavened bread. Hebrews continues in verse in chapter 11, the Spirit continues in chapter 11 to reveal such things about his word and speaking of the patriarchs. He says, all these died in faith without receiving, this is verse 13 of Hebrews 11, all these died in faith without receiving the promises but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So we find that in Hebrews 11, this testimony that those who beheld God's promises by faith would have been in some deposited way able to look beyond this festival and see what the Lord was picturing to them, that a land of no leaven. And so they were taught that as they kept this festival, that they were to keep it holy, they were to keep it fully, that they were to fully remove house uh, leaven from their household, or they would be cut off. They would be removed from the people of God. Because the person who defies God's regulations shows that he has no interest in the covenant with him. There's no interest in the God who is in covenant with them. That is, the actions testify that the covenant is not bearing upon the conscience of the individual. And so they were to keep it fully. They were to fully remove the leaven from not their households, but from the land. And so we see that it is this comes in light of the Exodus event. And so the, we recognize that the Old Covenant Exodus was the paradigm of God's saving acts. The New Testament crucifixion was the ultimate Exodus because it delivers not merely from the bondage of human despotism. Israelites didn't need to be delivered because Pharaoh was a tyrant because he violated their human rights. He delivered from Pharaoh because he was an unjust ruler. They needed to be delivered from the Pharaohs of their hearts. They needed to be delivered from themselves. And we see that with the... Passover and this Exodus points to is it, it delivers not merely from bondage to human despotism, but from bondage to sin itself. And thus it provides for life, not merely in a promised earthly land, 
but in an eternal promised land, the home of the Father. For the believing Israelite, they were to understand that these, that the Passover, the festival of unleavened bread, this exodus event pointed to their need of not to be delivered out of Egypt, but to be delivered out of sin. Not to be delivered into the land of Canaan, but to be finally delivered into the heavenly Canaan, an eternal promised land where the Lord dwells, not in tents, as he will come to do amongst them. This feast of unleavened bread followed the Passover also. We also see the, uh, the order of these events where the Passover is celebrated and then the Feast of Unleavened, Unleavened Bread follows the Passover. This was the show forth that sanctification logically follows justification. We have that in the Reformed tradition, the twin benefits of union with Christ are justification and sanctification. So when we are united to Christ, we are we stand in justification and in sanctification so that we can be exhorted to repent and believe or to repent alone or to believe alone in the New Testament. But it also in the Reformed tradition, it, it recognizes a logical order of salvation such that justification comes before sanctification, that our deliverance, our reconciliation to God are made right before a holy and righteous God comes before the process by which that righteousness is worked in our lives now, though it is imputed to us for our legal standing before God. And so it is a sureness. This is not in any way wavering our justification and putting it off till the end. This is a declaration that if you have faith in Christ, that you are now fully justified by Christ. But yet, the Spirit, by the work of the righteousness of Christ, will sanctify you now. So the Feast of Unleavened, Unleavened Bread followed the Passover to show forth that sanctification logically follows justification Rightly so, then upon the remembrance of their deliverance from slavery in Egypt, the Israelites were required to purge leaven from their households. So we can see where this festival stands, or we can at least begin to see where this festival stands for the Israelites. Not only the unbelieving, for they were delivered, and they were to also practice this so that they would remain in covenant with God under the old covenant, but also for believing Israelites who looked to the coming seed, the coming offspring, the greater Moses, whereby their hope was in a greater covenant. So we see what it is for the Israelites. It is important before we talk about for us to see it in Christ. Robert Hawker says, as the feast of the Passover prefigured deliverance from sin by the death of Christ, who has thereby delivered his people from the wrath to come, so the feast of unleavened bread typified his holy life by which 
in the unleavened purity of a perfect righteousness, he has, by doing as well as by dying, obtained eternal redemption for his people. In Christ, we not only celebrate his passive obedience, whereby we see him dying on the cross, but his active obedience, whereby he lived a life free from leaven, free from corruption, sinless in thought, word, and deed, by doing as well as by dying. So the Passover lamb, we see his dying. In the unleavened feast, we see his doing. So that we're able to see better the words of Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And Christ is not just our unleavened bread, but declares himself to be the manna who came down from heaven. His worth is far above what we can imagine. And as he said when he reformed this festival, his body is given for us. His unleavened body is given for us. His unleavened life is given to ours by faith. We look to Christ first as the unleavened bread so that we might understand what about for us. We know that Christ has given his life for us, but we see that in Christ's unleavened life, so the Christian is to purge the leaven of sin from their lives. The Christian celebrates this feast in Christ both corporately and individually. Corporately through church discipline. The Feast of Unleavened Bread in Christ is celebrated in the church corporately through church discipline. Look with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul here in 1 Corinthians 5 is rebuking them, saying that there's immorality spoken of them or existing with them that doesn't even exist among the Gentiles, implied in uh, verse 7, or in, in, the, in other parts prior to verse 7, is that they actually are arrogant about it. In verse 2, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead. There's an implication that they might have even celebrated their tolerance of such a sin and immorality that was existing amongst them. So what does the Apostle Paul say in verse 7? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. unleavened. For Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. 
Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul exhorts, he rebukes the Corinthians to remove the leaven, to clean out the leaven. A church that doesn't practice church discipline is no church at all. For they stand in opposition to the word of Christ. They suffer unrepentant life. Because now we see, we're going to see how it relates to us individually. The other way in which we celebrate this corporately is not only through church discipline, but also through deliverance or through remembering of our deliverance. One might have thought that that, that generation, at least, would never have been in danger of forgetting this deliverance. But alas, man in all ages needs memorandums of mercy to be continually brought before him. I didn't write this. I wish I wrote memorandums of mercy. Memorandums of mercy to be continually brought before him. Hence, the Lord graciously instituted the feast of unleavened bread. Reader, you and I are in danger of forgetting our spiritual deliverance from Egypt by the Lord Jesus Christ. Did not our Lord institute his holy supper to this very end that we might remember him? In Luke 22, when the Lord was instituting this supper, he said, and it says, and when he had taken some of the bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He takes the unleavened bread, he breaks it and shares it with them and says, do this in remembrance of me. It is for us to remember of our spiritual deliverance from Egypt. It is for us to remember the life that was given for us and the life we now have freedom to live in. We not only see it there in the remembering of our deliverance, but as we remember our deliverance, we also corporately recognize this in corporate confession. Something that's read each Lord's Day is this prayer of confession, that we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. Sin of commission, what we have done. Sin of omission, by what we have left undone. How we have transgressed the law of God and how we have fallen short of his glory. We have not loved you with our whole heart and soul and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as yourself. We confess to the Lord that we are leavened apart from Christ, that there is nothing in us deserving of his mercy. There's nothing in us deserving of his grace. It will be only by the Lord's grace and mercy coming to us by the spirit indwelling in us that we might actually live a life 
in reflecting in reflection of the unleavened life of Christ. So we confess these things to the Lord each day, spiritually celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Individually, it's connected because individually, every day we do so through the practice of repentance. David asked to be forgiven from both hidden sins and to be kept from presumptuous sins. In our daily life, we ought to not only repent of that which comes to our mind as it relates to our actions and thought, word, and deed, but we also ought to go beyond that in the likeness of the psalmist and ask the Lord to forgive our hidden sins and to keep us from presumptuous sins. The psalmist knows that he sins consciously and unconsciously in ignorance of what God requires. And he prays against both faults. What response do we have of the knowledge of such forgiveness? Psalm 51. Again, David helps us in verse 15. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you did not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So we see here that the church celebrates this unleavened bread in Christ, the unleavened bread, both corporately and individually. So that as we recognize this, we see that it is our call by Christ to walk in practical holiness all the days of our current pilgrimage. And mo moreover, we are to recognize that this is as a direct result of being washed in the blood and having communion with the sufferings of Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we give you thanks and we have such a blessing of your word and your testimony in the Old Testament, whereby the revelation of Christ, we are able to see with fuller eyes your intention in the instituting of such festivals for our benefit. We thank you, Lord, for the deposit of such faith we give you praise for our unleavened bread, Christ our Lord. We ask, Lord, that you, by your Spirit, would work in our lives to reflect that unleavenedness of our Savior with the hope and knowledge that is Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith, will see us to that greater country. Let us continue to rejoice together this morning in the celebration of your table. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.